This is True Crime Exposed, and I'm your host, Kayla Waters. Each week on our show, you'll find a new deep dive into a case. And you can join my co-host, Alicia Jenkins, as we discuss the case together. We created this show to give victim stories exposure, to focus on the victims and make these cases about them. And by doing that, we can expose the monsters lurking all around us. Welcome back, everyone. We're going to quickly get into this case. It is a case that is somewhat connected to our last case, the case of Amber Hoops, and it is another missing child's case out of Idaho. But this case is very intriguing because there are a few suspects that all seem like they could have committed the crime, but it couldn't have been all three of them. So you tell me, what do you think? With that, are you ready for today's case? For today's case, it is somewhat connected to Amber Hope's case, which we covered last week. And that connection, I said, was through Keith Glenn Hescock. And as you heard, Keith is likely the man who kidnapped and probably murdered Amber. Police found him to be responsible for Amber's disappearance after he kidnapped that other 14-year-old girl in the southeast Idaho area. And you'll remember that this young girl bravely escaped Keith's chains and the Bonneville County Sheriff's detectives were called to the scene. And this was the same police force working Amber's case. And here's your little refresher. Following that 14-year-old's escape, Keith gets into a high-speed chase with police and takes his own life after coming to a dead end. And while Keith had always been a suspect in the minds of Amber's family, he wasn't a serious suspect to police until after his death. And I mentioned last week that Keith is not only tied to two kidnappings, but that there is also a third he very well could have done. But it's not as solid in this case. And there are other suspects as well. Honestly, there could even be more than two or three kidnappings Keith is tied to. If he's for sure tied to at least two, one of which likely ended in murder, what's to say he hadn't done this before? And then you'll see today in Stephanie's case, he is a very likely suspect, especially in hindsight, knowing that he is a confirmed child abductor and predator. But the mind-boggling thing about this case is that there are two other suspects who look just as guilty. Like, I'm torn between all three suspects equally. Honestly, (laughs) I could see each of them having a hand in Stephanie's disappearance. It's kind of crazy. I don't like that. I know. It's one of those ones that kind of goes to show you that, like, just because someone looks good for a crime doesn't necessarily mean they did it. Yeah. Because I do think it's easy, for me at least, to like, if it makes sense, then it makes sense. Like, I, I'm kind and of like... And you think it's that person for sure. Yeah. But then when you have three people that seem that they could be tied to it, it's like, well, it can't be all three of them. Which one? Yeah. yeah. So... Yeah, it's pretty strange. So let's go back to the beginning. In 1993, Stephanie Crane was a nine-year-old little girl who loved roughhousing with the boys. She's obsessed with her cowboy boots and she likes to get dirty. The outdoors are her safe haven with friends and siblings to run around with and her bubbly attitude drew everyone in. She was super fun to be around and she is a natural in sports. She loves playing soccer and going hunting and fishing. She loves collecting rocks. They said she goes rock counting, which you've done. I don't think you like it, but you've done it. It's not my favorite. I think I mentioned it in like episode one of this case because that's when I almost called the police (laughs) on you. Yeah, the only time I went rock hounding you 
thought I went missing. I thought the whole family was dead at the house and that somebody killed you guys because you were out of touch for like 10 hours searching for rocks. So Stephanie, like Cassie, (laughs) loved to collect rocks and like go find them. So there's a home video of her in this disappeared episode that covered the case. It's titled Into the Mist. And on this home video, she's like, super excited when she's opening a present on Christmas that turns out to be a BB gun. So she's just like a big time tomboy. And Stephanie lives in the small town of Chalice, Idaho with her parents, Ben and Sandy Crane. And Chalice is a part of Custer County. And this is a very rural and remote area with only 902 residents in the 2020 census. So it's one of those places where everybody knows each other. Chalice is about two and a half hours northwest of Idaho Falls, where Amber Hoops is later kidnapped. Stephanie's case takes place before Amber's case. So this didn't happen in the same town as these other two kidnappings Keith does later on, but it is fairly close, just a short few hour drive away. And on October 11th, 1993, Stephanie had gone to school as usual. Following school, Stephanie heads to the nearby bowling alley with her friends Chase McCoy and Brandy Bennett's just after 3 p.m. And they're actually a part of an elementary bowling league, which is like absolutely adorable. There's a little girls team and a little boys team. And while they're at bowling league, there is a team mom hanging out there with them. And this is Luann Berry. She's keeping score and she has an eye on everyone while the kids bowl. And as they wrap up bowling league, all the kids say their goodbyes, and then Stephanie heads off to walk home. She always walked home from the bowling alley on this day, just like she walked home from school on all the other days. And since bowling league ended around 4.45 p.m., Stephanie was supposed to be home by 5 p.m., just 15 minutes later after bowling league ends. So once 5 p.m. passes, tiny alarm bells go off for Sandy. First, she calls Stephanie's grandma, Hazel, who lives just next door, and she's like, hey, Steph hasn't made it home yet. Did she just happen to come to your house? And Hazel says no, but she there's some boys in the backyard, and she wonders if Stephanie is just had stopped out there to join them. So she goes out to check, and stomachs drop when it turns out that Stephanie is not back there. Immediately, Sandy and Hazel head outside, and they're looking for Stephanie. By the time darkness surrounds them, the duo is petrified because they know Stephanie would not be alone out in the dark, whether she's with friends, whether she's alone. She just would not be outside at the dark because she has a deep fear of the dark. Stephanie was like super close with her grandma Hazel since she was the firstborn grandchild and because her grandma lives so close and while she loved to go over and like garden and cook and help around the house no matter how often Stephanie would ask to spend the night at her grandma's she would always get too scared once it was dark and then she would ask to go (laughs) home so like she didn't even like being inside of her grandma's house when it was dark yeah they know she's not gonna be outside so she was nine she's nine yeah, so she's and she was in a bowling league. She's in a bowling but league it was through the school. Yeah, and what what grade is nine? Is it like fourth grade? I think so. Yeah, and so and then they all walked home from it. Yeah, and they didn't all walk home. Like some of those kids got rides home with their mom, but Stephanie normally would just walk home because it was like ten to fifteen minutes away. So like a pretty quick okay. walk. She would head home. Some of the other kids would be driven. But like at this time in 93, it was very usual for kids to walk home or to ride their bikes home. Okay. But probably not as many kids are walking home at this time, like at 445, as they would be around three when like the whole elementary school gets out. Yeah. Since she stays for the bowling league, I think there's less kids actually walking like alongside her it sounds like she's alone okay so once the clock passes 8 p.m the panic is full-blown sandy decides it's time to get police involved because something is wrong 
She physically goes down to the police station, busting in, declaring that her nine-year-old daughter is missing. Linda Dubiel takes the missing persons report and she's featured in the disappeared documentary. She says that she still wonders to this day what happened to the little girl that went missing while she was on duty. Remember, this is a small town, so everyone is on high, high alert right away. They watch out for each other here. And the community is immediately out searching until midnight that first night. Police are driving around town. Boats are searching the Salmon River. But there's no sign of Stephanie. And the next day, the community is back out searching. The fire department, as well as the state law enforcement, is now involved. They're walking through fields. They're checking old sheds and looking in the canals. A group is started called Friends of Stephanie. It's a bunch of moms and other community members that are printing flyers and posting them up all around town. And they're even sending them nationwide in the mail. There are search dogs brought in that track Stephanie's scent, but they lose it very close to the bowling alley. Eventually, a $50,000 reward is put up by community members who put up $25,000, and then there's an anonymous donor who puts up the other $25,000. So, as you can tell, Stephanie's disappearance is taken very seriously right away. It was unusual for a child in this town to not make it home from school. Chase remembers all of his friends riding their bikes around town by themselves, like just with no parents, or they'd walk home from school together. It had been such a normal day for Stephanie. So what could have happened? And while Stephanie's family hoped and prayed for some sort of misunderstanding, they could feel in their gut that something was very wrong. So where did Stephanie go after leaving the bowling league? Well, Luann, team mom, recalls backing out of the parking lot where she sees Stephanie at a bridge that crosses a creek. And in that moment, she assumes Stephanie is crossing the bridge. And then after crossing, she knows there's a path that leads directly down to Stephanie's grandma's. So just before getting into her car, Luann had asked Stephanie, like, hey, are you headed home? And Stephanie said yes. So Luann clearly spots her headed home. So why does her friend Brandy spot Stephanie five minutes later on Highway 93, now headed back towards the school? Brandy is with her mom, who is like, what is Stephanie doing? Like, why would she be going back to the school? Did they stop? They did stop. So her mom stops. She tells Brandy, like, ask Stephanie what she's doing. So Brandy calls out to Stephanie. But it turns out that Stephanie forgot her backpack at the soccer fields. So she declines a ride home from Brandy's mom that fateful afternoon. So like they asked her, like, do you want a ride? But she's like, no, I forgot my backpack. I'm just going to run back to the school. I'm going to oh, grab it and then I'm going to head it's home. It's like, we'll give you a ride to get your backpack. And take you home. Dang it. I know. It's like, I'm sure everyone was just like, okay, like no big deal. But if you do think about it, by the time she grabs her backpack and is probably headed back home, she's probably pretty alone at that point. Yeah. So Brandy waves goodbye, telling Stephanie that she will see her tomorrow at school. She had no idea that would be the last time she would ever speak to her best friend. Now, Chase McCoy did see something on the afternoon of October 11th that creeped him out. When he is interviewed by officers four days after Stephanie's disappearance, Chase tells them that there was a guy at the bowling alley that gave him this weird, icky feeling. He remembers this dude staring at kids from across the way, just sitting there alone at the bowling alley. And while this creeped Chase out at the time, it absolutely petrified him now that Stephanie is missing. And this feels like a solid lead. So Chase works with a police sketch artist to produce a composite sketch. The sketch resembles a white male around 37 years old, 175 pounds and 5 foot 10 inches tall. The man was said to have short reddish brown hair, sporting a hat, sunglasses and a beard with a mustache. I actually saved this to send to you alongside Keith's picture and see if you thought at all that they looked like each other because <laughs> there's two other suspects too yes but we don't know what they look like oh but i mean keith does have brownish hair i don't know if it's brownish reddish and in his picture he has a mustache not a beard but this would have been 
nine years earlier before Amber's disappearance. So like nine years Mm. before he's 42-ish. That's hard to tell because the eyes are in sunglasses. I know. That's kind of like what I was thinking. Like it's like you wouldn't you wouldn't be like, oh, yeah, that's him. Yeah, for sure. Because the composite sketch is a guy with a hat with sunglasses on and a beard. So like the only thing that's truly showing like of his face is like his nose. Yeah. So to me, I was like, well, it kind of looks like your typical Idaho boy that sketch yeah and if it was Keith although it doesn't look like the picture I could find of Keith which there's literally only like one picture on the internet of Keith Hescock I mean maybe maybe could be maybe not literally can't even tell but again if it was it would have taken place nine years earlier so Keith would have only been like 33 at the time although the sketch to me looks like maybe a 20 something year old yeah I was gonna say a young and looks young looks like a young Idaho boy is what I thought got Mm -hmm. hat glasses a beard like I could point out a hundred people that look like this maybe even my own husband looks like this (laughs) (laughs) got the beard (laughs) but it wasn't him because he was not born in 93 oh my gosh So aside from Chase's recollection of this creepy dude at the bowling alley, a few other tips come in right away. During the search for Stephanie on the day following her disappearance, multiple calls come in about a yellow truck spotted near the elementary school that is giving people in town like sketchy vibes. Remember, this is a small town, so residents pretty much recognize each other's vehicles, especially parents there at the school. And now with one of their own missing, everyone is on high alert. Unfortunately, no one that called in wrote down the license plate number of this vehicle. So when police went to look for it and it's gone, they have no way to track it down. But it feels like a yellow truck. I mean, that's not that common. Right. So it was like noticeable. Not only is it not like a vehicle they recognize, but it's like standing out. Yeah. Did, yeah. I know Keith had a truck. Was his yellow? It was. Oh. Yeah. So that does come back into his connection to this. But at this moment, like when they go to look for it, they're not able to find it. It's gone and they can't track it down. So then there's this other sighting of a strange vehicle that's reported on October 14th, just four days following the disappearance. And this is the same day that investigators had gone to interview the other children that had been with Stephanie that day. So this other tip, it's a blue van parked on the shoulder of Highway 93, and it's parked only half a mile down from the bowling alley. And also remember, this is the highway that Brandy last spots Stephanie on. And the tip comes in from a convenience store worker who says that there were two men fighting in this blue van at the store just before they're parked on the shoulder of the highway. And then following this, there's a second sighting of the van, and it comes in saying that it's spotted just 30 miles south of Chalice. Now, I'm not sure what's up with the tip that two men are fighting. For some reason, it makes this van seem less suspicious to me because I guess I picture like one person kidnapping Stephanie, although I could be totally off base and like wrong. I just also don't picture like two dudes who did a kidnapping then making a scene at a gas station by getting in a fight. I don't I don't know. Yeah, that sounds kind of weird. Yeah. Like you see these two guys fighting, but like is there a little girl with them? Is there like it just seems odd. And just like with the yellow truck, no one writes down a license plate number, so the vehicle is not able to be traced when police go looking, and they can't find it. And there was also no surveillance video at the convenience store. So it's like another dead-end tip. And it's with these sightings of multiple strange cars in the area that police have a sinking feeling. Because there in Chalice, Idaho, October is a time where many unknown cars pass through. And this is because it's deer hunting season. And since Chalice is remote, there are a lot of people traveling around this area for the hunt. And Highway 93 is the main road leading outsiders in and out of town. 
So Stephanie was snatched up right off the side of the highway by someone driving through. They would have been able to drive right out of town before anyone even noticed she was gone. Mm. So and that is where she's last seen on Highway 93. So this is like a very easy spot for someone to have abducted her. Dang it. Why didn't that her friend's mom pick her up? I know. It's just like, oh, you just wish, which that friend is like so devastated in the documentary. And she's like a full grown adult in the documentary. Well, yeah. Hindsight's twenty twenty. You don't know. But. but I'm sure they even look back on it and just like, oh, like they wish that they would have pressured her to take a ride. Her. Yeah. 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 So all of a sudden, Chalice has a dark cloud over it. Chase describes the feeling back then as whiplash. Everyone went from feeling invincible to feeling vulnerable. There were no longer kids walking down the road alone. In fact, Luann says that the paranoia was so consuming. Parents didn't even trust their kids to be walked from their classroom out to the bus. So she describes to the documentary, like, she's like, I would go to my student's classroom because I did not trust that the teacher could walk them to the bus and they'd be safe. And she's like, and inside the classroom, there were about 20 other parents doing the same thing. Like they were walking inside to yeah, get their kid. Yeah, you'd be a little freaked out. Now, the months pass by with nothing developing in the case. And soon, almost a year passes. The family and friends of Stephanie are forced to endure her 10th birthday celebration without her. It's one day before her birthday on September 27, 1994, that community members and family gather together to release purple balloons into the sky. And purple was her favorite color. Stephanie Crane had been born on September 28, 1984, to parents Ben Crane and Sandy Anderson Crane. And while Sandy stayed home to care for the couple's kids and their home, Ben was working hard at the local mineral mines, and a little hobby of his was taxidermy, which is where you, like, stuff or mount animal skins, giving them that lifelike appearance. And honestly, it was probably a perfect side gig for the area, because like I said, there's a lot of hunting going on here. So Stephanie is Ben and Sandy's oldest daughter, and at the time of her disappearance, she has three younger sisters, aged two, four, and six. And her grandma, Hazel, says that Stephanie bonded with her dad like they were just very close because Sandy was often taking care of these younger girls, and now Stephanie's old enough to go do activities with her dad, like going on a hunting trip or going down to the river to fish. Stephanie also was like the best big sis. Brandy remembers her toting the baby around like she was her own. And the loss of Stephanie was a giant hole in the hearts of this family. Everyone suffers. Ben closes off. He limits his conversations and he becomes very quiet. You could feel the sadness radiating from him. And he coped with this by trying to move on in his life. He couldn't dwell on the thoughts of where Stephanie might be. If he thought about it too often, he just wouldn't be able to walk through life any longer. And Sandy coped with it opposite. She couldn't move on. The thoughts of where her little girl might be consumed her. She wanted to talk about Stephanie. She wanted to obsess over the details of that day. She couldn't ever stop thinking of her oldest baby. So ultimately, this led Ben and Sandy to divorce just one and a half years after Stephanie goes missing. Which, I mean, you hear that's very common in the case, like, in any death of a child. Yeah. Especially if you're just, like, not able to cope the same way. Mm-hmm. And it's soon after this, in May of 1995, Sandy Anderson moves to Reno, Nevada. Sadly, she does leave her other three girls behind with Ben. Which, like, it's a tough one for me because I'm like, no, I know. I'm like, no, don't leave your other girls. Because they would have only been four, six, and eight years old at this time. But then on the other hand, like, I obviously cannot imagine what it would feel like to lose a child. And just, like, the hole you might want to crawl into to escape it. But True, but then she wanted... How could she leave the other ones? It just like goes to show it obvious, like obviously the disappearance of Stephanie, like totally consumed her. Yeah. To be able to then like leave your other kids. It's just sad. It is sad. So, so tragic. Yeah. And so sad for the girls to like lose their sister and then lose their mom like that. 
it's just not a great situation. So Grandma Hazel, she is Ben's mom. So Sandy had been her daughter-in-law. And she tells Disappeared that she doesn't think Sandy had a great life down there in Reno. All I know from here is that Sandy is back in Idaho at the Idaho Falls Hospital on August 14th, 1997, when she passes away due to illness. Hazel says that she was suffering from blood clots in her lungs. So it's only like less than four years since Stephanie goes missing that her mom passes away. Oh my goodness. So she was young. Like she had these health issues. But I wonder how much of that stemmed from like a broken heart. Yeah. Those next four years seem pretty miserable for her and she passes away. All I can hope is that Sandy finally had answers about what happened to her oldest child. And if Stephanie is no longer with us, that they're reunited. And my heart hurts for Stephanie's little sisters who at this time are about six, eight and 10 years old. Because like I said, they endured the disappearance of their sister, their mom leaves, and now the death of their mom. So I just can't imagine how strong they must be. Because at this point in their lives, they have been through a lot more than most people. Yeah. And for such young kids, like all under the age of 10, to go through all those trials, like in that short span, I just... Oh, yeah. It's like uproots your entire Lots life. Of trials there. And through all of this, Ben, he stays in Chalice for a few years following Stephanie's disappearance, raising his three girls with the help of his mom, Hazel, and his dad, Earl. But Chalice just felt so heavy with the memories of a once complete family lingering. So in 1998, just a year after his ex-wife's death, he moves his girls up to Orcas Island in Washington State. It's about 800 miles away from Chalice. And Stephanie's grandparents, Hazel and Earl, they feel just broken by her loss. They stay in Chalice with the hope that Stephanie might return one day. Hazel describes Earl as being angry at everyone. He's mad at the person that stole Stephanie. He's mad that the police aren't solving the case. And she heartbreakingly says that he's even mad at himself for not being able to figure it all out. She says, quote, I don't know that you cope. You just do the things that you have to do. And 10 years after Stephanie's disappearance, Hazel loses her husband Earl when he passes away in May of 2003. And then nine years later, Ben, Stephanie's dad, dies at 48 years old. Oh, geez. I know. So poor Hazel. They're all dying young. Yeah. It's like Grandma Hazel outlived her husband, outlived her son, her ex-daughter-in-law, and her granddaughter. Yeah. Like, it just seems like a lot of loss to endure for one person. It does. Yeah. So, Hazel isn't convinced that Stephanie has been killed. She recognizes that maybe this is just because that's what she wants to believe, but it's stories of girls like J.C. Dugard who escaped their captors decades later that give her hope. She imagines the possibility of someone picking Stephanie up on the highway and convincing her that maybe her parents sold her to them or telling her that her parents didn't want her. Hazel says that it's not improbable to think that a nine-year-old girl could be manipulated into believing whatever someone may tell them. So I think her like best case scenario at this point is that like someone picked her up wanting them as her child and like raised her perfectly fine but convinced her not to like seek out her old family Hmm. and again she says like she says herself like maybe I just believe this because that's what I want yeah and you know she's not wrong it is always a possibility in these missing persons cases that those who are lost may still be found one day this is actually something that keeps me up at night if you think about it how many people right now are missing maybe even presumed dead That are really like being held captive. Yeah, I don't know. Do they have statistics on it? Probably not. Because they don't know. Like, and how many people were held captive like their whole lives until like old age? It's like a harrowing thought to me. Like how many of you are out there that are like alive that we all think are dead, but you're like out there somewhere. Yeah, that's just mind boggling to think about that. Yeah, it hurts my head and my heart. I hate the thought, but every time I like 
dive into a missing person missing persons case I wonder that you're like where are like how you? many of you are out there and it's like so sad to think that people could just be out there waiting for somebody to help them mm-hmm. I hate it anyway Moving on, you know, Hazel has this hope. I think Stephanie's family always had that hope, but that's also what is so painful for the family, the not knowing, the hoping that their loved one is out there somewhere and the fear that they may never come home. Navigating the emotions of a missing person is a roller coaster. So aside from the couple tips about strange cars and Chase's tip about the creepy man at the bowling alley, Did anything come from the investigation into Stephanie Crane's disappearance? Obviously, it did because I've mentioned three suspects. So let's go back to 1995. This is just two years after Stephanie vanishes. At this point, all of Stephanie's family is still there in Chalice, and they have been frustrated with the lack of communication in the case. While Hazel feels now that she is glad to not know about every single tip that came in, they just needed more communication about what investigators were thinking. The family felt alone. Hazel said that if she knew about every tip, her emotions would have been all over the place, so it was somewhat of a protection not to be actively involved in the investigation. But there is a healthy balance, and Stephanie's family felt like they were getting nothing. Due to some of their complaints, the Idaho Attorney General comes to Chalice in 1995, and he wants to have a little chat and address their concerns. However, the meeting does not go well. The Attorney General basically tells the family that according to their office, there's actually no proof in Stephanie's case that a crime has even been committed. Oh my gosh, why would you even say that? Literally, people, like, when they do this, especially in children's cases, it's like, really? You do think the nine-year-old ran away? Exactly, and that's pretty much Hazel's response. She snaps back and she says, oh, so you just think she vaporized or what? (laughs) Like she vaporized into thin air. Like, where did she go? Oh, my gosh. So she's met with the response that it is a possibility Stephanie simply ran away from home. Oh. Yeah. No, not a nine-year-old. Like, yes, she ran away from home and it's been two years now. She's just out there living her life. And she hasn't come back. Yep. And it has the family's eyes literally rolling to the back of their heads as much as it has ours doing the same. And Hazel says she's nine years old. If she ran away from home, she'd be at grandma's house and she's not here. Yeah. So needless to say, this meeting does not end on a happy note. And then more years pass with no information. But in 1997, a promising lead comes into the Custer County Sheriff's Office there in Chalice. And the tip comes from the Idaho Department of Fish and Game. In their custody, they have Keith Glenn Hescock. So here he is. This is where he connects to Stephanie Crane's disappearance. The Fish and Game have taken him into custody for the unlawful possession of wildlife. And what I could find on this specific charge was that under the Idaho law, no person shall engage in any propagation or hold in captivity any species of big game animal found wild in this state unless the person has been issued a license or permit. So, like, I kind of thought maybe a poaching charge. It sounded like maybe a poaching charge, but then it also sounds like he could have just, like, held captive a wild animal that was alive. Like, I don't know. He was probably hunting without a license or something. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. So, you know, basically he either has a wild animal held captive or like maybe he took a fish out of like a lake. Like, you know, sometimes you fish, but you can't actually like take the fish with you. Yeah. Like you have to like catch and release. Maybe it's something like that. Something without a permit, without a license. I'm not exactly sure, but he's in a little bit of trouble here. And the Idaho Fish and Game Department actually collects some of his belongings. And what they see is disturbing. He has a pornography stash, but the pictures seem to depict what looks to them like underage girls. And by looking at Keith's history, it's determined that on October 11th, 1993, he was in or nearby Chalice, Idaho. This is the same date that Stephanie goes missing. That day, Keith had shot a bighorn sheep up Morgan Creek, which is in Custer County. So he 
is placed there. Yeah. Everyone at this time here in Idaho knew about Stephanie's case. So once this discovery is made, investigators were quickly notified and they feel like it's a great lead. So they hone in. It soon learned that Keith actually owned a truck matching the description of the truck seen nearby the elementary school the day after Stephanie's disappearance. He owns a very similar yellow truck, which you guessed earlier. So all of these things, like, they tie him to it. Investigators feel like they have their guy. So a search warrant is issued for his residence back there in Idaho Falls or near Idaho Falls, but there is nothing inside that ties him to Stephanie, which I mean, it's been almost four years, so it's likely he wouldn't have had anything tying him to Stephanie by this point. But due to the lack of evidence, police move on. They cannot definitively connect Keith to Stephanie's disappearance. It turns out that four years later, when he abducts the 14-year-old girl who survived, he tells her that he's done this before and that he killed that little girl. And this is mentioned by a police officer in relation to Stephanie's case. And while I do believe he's a very likely suspect, he could have also been referring to Amber Hoops. She wasn't necessarily a little girl. She was 20 years old, but he was in his 40s. So to him, he could have still referred to her as, hmm. I've done this to a little girl before. You know? Yes. So all we know is that this is where the investigation into Keith's connection to Stephanie ends. But it seems pretty solid. Like, he was there hunting. His truck matches a sus vehicle in the area. He possesses child sexual abuse photos. And years later, he kidnaps two other girls. And if there wasn't a single other suspect in this case, we would all probably probably say, like, he's 100% your guy. Right? Yeah. Like That's what I'm thinking right now. Yeah. If this is where it ended, it's like, uh, all right. So Keith did it. Like, I kind of think he did, but then I get convinced by the other ones, too, so I don't know. But by this point in the investigation, police do not know that in a few years, Keith will abduct other little girls out of the Idaho Falls area. But when the path leading to Keith dries up, Stephanie's case goes cold again, and there is no friction until seven years later in May of 2000. Sergeant Miles from the Canyon County Sheriff's Office in Nampa, Idaho, heads into the local detention facility to collect information brought forward by an inmate. Nampa is about 200 miles east of Chalice, super close to Boise, Idaho. By car, Chalice is about four and a half hours from Nampa. So Sergeant Miles finds out that this inmate thinks he has information that relates to Stephanie Crane's case. He claims that he has a female friend who shared an apartment with a man back in 1993, the same year Stephanie went missing. This apartment was in Nampa, Idaho, and the inmate says that he heard a crazy tell from this friend of his. She had told him that while renting this apartment, she one day heard what sounded like a little girl screaming and crying. And she's not the only one who heard the cries. Neighbors also heard it. The sounds were coming from a basement window, and according to this inmate, the friend of his was never allowed to go into the basement, and neither were any of the other tenants. The information is shocking and intriguing, so police decide to get in contact with this woman who told the story to the inmate. And when they bring her in, she confirms the story. She's like, yes, I did share an apartment with this weird man back in 1993. He rented out rooms to tenants, and he drifted between Idaho and Oregon, and his behavior freaked me out. She goes on to tell them that neighbors at that time had believed there was someone being held captive in the basement, which what confuses me is that there is like no mention in the disappeared documentary of anyone ever calling police back then. Like it sounded as though all these people were suspicious and felt weird about a literal girl crying in a basement, but then like nothing is done. The documentary only refers to this man as the drifter. So that's how I'll refer to him from here on out. And the woman goes on to tell detectives that she even asked the drifter what was going on in the basement. She thought she could hear crying and she asked why she wasn't allowed down there. Well, his answer sent a chill down her spine because he says, oh, 
well, that's just my daughter downstairs and she's crying because she's in trouble and she's being punished. Like, why didn't you call the police? Exactly. And why didn't the neighbors, like if all of you were like, uh, there's a girl being held captive. You heard, yeah. Like, and you thought you heard screaming. Yes. Like, please, PSA, if you hear screaming and crying from anybody or you think someone's being held captive, just call the police. What harm can be done? Yeah. If they're not being held captive, oh, well, like, great. Have someone go check it out. Exactly. So that part, like, really confuses me. And there's not a ton of, like, deep diving into it. But the next time that the drifter is out of the home, this woman decides to search through his things. And when she finds little girl's underwear hidden in his room, she immediately flips out. She has children of her own and she decides she has to leave this apartment immediately for the safety of herself and her kids. So she leaves. But again, there is no mention of anyone contacting police until this inmate comes forward seven years later. Wow. Like, I'm glad she left, especially if she had kids of her own. But like, again, I really wish you would have called the police back then. And that's a really long time span. Yeah, like seven years. Like this guy freaked you out enough to just straight up move out. But like you just didn't want to contact authorities. Mm -hmm. Odd, I guess. It's just odd to me. So... This man being connected to Stephanie seemed like a far stretch to me at first. Like, they're 200 miles away in Nampa. No police were ever called. And the story isn't coming out until seven years later. But police do investigate this lead. The woman was able to provide police with a name, so they also dive into his background. It turns out that this man had been arrested only 13 months before Stephanie's disappearance. And this arrest was for a sex charge involving a minor. In fact, he had assaulted his own daughter. Ultimately, he was convicted of sexual abuse in the third degree. But he never freaking serves a day in prison for it because he takes a plea deal that granted him a six-month suspended prison sentence. And first of all, six months is not enough time for a sexual abuse of a minor charge. Plus, in this case, it's suspended. So that means he won't serve a day of it unless he gets in more trouble while they're getting it all cleared up and while he's on probation. So instead, he only has to serve three years on probation, which even if he went to prison for sexually assaulting his daughter for three years, that's not enough. No. But he only has probation i don't i just do not get our system i don't get it either like literally this entire country probably the world like they take kids cases the least serious i know like for the love if you're going to put someone who like has possession of marijuana in prison for like 20 years let's get some better sentencing for the child predators yes I would much rather have people who possess marijuana on the streets than I would people who are attacking children. I just do not get it. I think that they're not as easy of convictions. And so the system just doesn't take them as seriously. Uh, I don't like it. I don't know how to fix it, but it does need fixed. Yes, agreed. Yeah. And this charge was in Oregon. But then they still allow him during his probation to move to Idaho. So on top of all of this, the judge determines that all future contact with his daughter has to be supervised, which I was like, excuse me, like, how about nothing? Like, nada, like, not a single moment does he get to spend with his daughter. Like, he lost that right. Yeah. Like, she doesn't want to see him. Yeah. What? Like, supervised? No, nothing. Like, you don't get to see your daughter. I was just so annoyed when I, the, during this whole part, because I just could not wrap my mind around what he got. And then that he's just like allowed to come to Idaho. Like, keep your child predators in your state. We'll keep ours here. You keep yours there. Yeah. Like, don't let them move exactly. around. <laughs> so. Anyway, this is just crazy. Had me in a full-blown rage. And it's not the only thing that tick, like that ticks me off. 
police investigating Stephanie's case will not release his name to this day in 2023. They will not release his name, which I understand that Stephanie's case is still open, but this guy is a convicted child predator. Like, I don't really think we need to protect his name. No. Like, he is a literal convicted child predator. So how about just release his name? Like, I don't think not releasing his name is benefiting Stephanie's case. To me, it seems like it's more just protecting him from being accused, like wrongfully accused. But it's like, yeah, he assaulted his own daughter. So, so release his name. Yeah. So that was like so frustrating because <laughs> A, we should know his name, especially if this a-hole is here in Idaho still. I want to know his name. I'm sure everybody else in Nampa who's living around him would like to know who he is. Yeah. Got me really heated. Clearly, he is a walking red flag. And detectives decide to make contact with him back then when they're investigating in 2000. He's working in a local business there in Nampa. And when he is approached, he agrees to come in for a polygraph. The drifter is extremely defensive when Stephanie's case is brought up. Police report that when he is asked questions about Stephanie's case and if he has anything to do with it, he fails miserable. But you all know my stance on polygraphs. I kind of think they're a load of BS. So like not a real science, but this makes police look even harder at him. With all of this information, they're able to obtain a search warrant for that apartment in Nampa where he used to live. And I don't know if he like had recently moved out or if no one had been in there since. It seems that way. I don't know. Because detectives say that they searched that suspicious basement to find a couple of mattresses on the floor with what looks to be bloodstains on them. And not only that, but there is also a rope that they find hairs in. The bloodstains are cut from the mattress, and along with the hair, they're sent off to a state lab nearby in Boise, Idaho. Results come back only to say that it can't be determined if the bloodstains are human or animal. Ew, if they're animal. I mean, ew, if they're human, but like, I mean, you could like get a cut or like have your period, you know, like those could be human bloodstains on a mattress, but like, why do you like why would you have animal blood on your mattress? I don't like that at all. Yeah. <laughs> like no. disgusting. But the hair in that rope is determined to be human. However, DNA was not able to take place at that lab on the hair because the follicle was not attached. So it does seem like even today, if they don't have the follicle, the hair is pretty mm-hmm. useless. Yep. I have heard that too. But the detectives don't give up here. Just about a month following the lab results, the Idaho State Police and FBI head to Chalice, Idaho, in search for more evidence to tie this drifter to Stephanie. They create a photo lineup and speak with Tina Foster, who was working at the bowling alley on that last day Stephanie was seen. She's asked if she recognizes anyone in the lineup as being the strange man alone at the bowling alley that night. And she does point to the drifter, although she says she can't be 100% certain, which I guess that's like how lineups usually go because these people don't personally know who they're looking for. So usually if someone looks familiar, I guess they don't say like, that's the person, but they normally say, I think that's the person. Yeah. So this guy does seem to be another viable suspect in Stephanie's case. What's hard is that we don't know his name. Oh, like, my gosh. I know. Like, he seems pretty good for it, too, right? Like, this girl points yeah. to him. He had a crying girl with rope and hair in the basement. He was at, moved to Idaho a year before she disappears after a sexual assault charge. He's an odd guy and a great suspect. And regardless of, like, us having very little information like released about him it seems like for detectives this is their main suspect Hmm. like they are the most focused on this suspect to this day oh really yeah but following that photo lineup things go cold until 2002 just a couple years later when Keith Hescock is back on their radar and this is when Keith is caught for that kidnapping in southeastern Idaho and then takes his own life 
So in 2000, when police are honing in on that drifter, they really had no idea that, you know, what Keith was capable of. Before this, he was just a guy who was in Chalice on the day Stephanie disappeared. His criminal history at that time seemed to be that he was only caught for possessing wildlife he wasn't allowed to have. Until 2002, he didn't seem so dangerous. And now he's dead, so he isn't giving police any answers once he comes back on the radar. But he does remain a suspect to this day. Maybe not their main one. Maybe that's because he is no longer living, but he is on the suspect list. Yes, I know I said this last week, but I really hate when they kill themselves. I know, because it's like, really? Everything goes with them. It is the worst. Because families deserve answers. They do. So more years pass by with little to no answers on what happened to little Stephanie Crane. But in 2006, an unexpected tip comes into the sheriff's office there in Chalice. The call is from Thorn Creek, Idaho, which is about 165 miles from Chalice. It's like a three and a half hour drive. Detectives there are in the middle of investigating a man's suicide when they find his suicide note. The note depicts that this man was deeply troubled with guilt and he lays out why he had to take his own life and how this guilt was literally eating him alive. He writes that he could no longer live with the secret he was keeping. The note describes that this man had a friend named Kevin Mooney, who basically confessed to him that he was the one who kidnapped Stephanie Crane. He writes that Kevin says he kidnapped and raped a little girl in Chalice, Idaho. And when he was describing the event, he referred to the little girl as Steph. This note is disturbing, and detectives obviously take it very seriously, The Chalice detectives call the Idaho State Police and the FBI right away to inform them about what they had just discovered. Kevin Mooney is 42 years old at this time, and it seems like like all they can really find out about him is he can't keep a steady job. He's like jumping career paths all the time. And while he does have several previous charges, they all seem to be for minor offenses. And when Kevin is interrogated, he doesn't say he was not in Chalice that October day in 1993. He just says that he can't remember being there that day. And Kevin says he's dumbfounded that his friend would mention him in his suicide note. And he has no idea why this friend would say he killed a little girl. Investigators scour his house during a search. They even take cadaver dogs, but they don't hit on anything. And there's no evidence found tying Kevin to Stephanie, which by this point, it has been 13 years. Oh, so long. Unless he's keeping a trophy, obviously. He has had plenty of time to get rid of anything that would connect him to Stephanie if he's connected. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, they don't find anything and they're like, will you take a polygraph? And of course he agrees. And when he passes, police decide he is being honest and that's enough for them. They clear him and they move along. He is not even considered a person of interest anymore. Which like, again, not a big fan of polygraphs. That's insane. I don't really think the polygraph should be determining um, if we believe someone is guilty or innocent because well yeah I mean there was no evidence tying Kevin to Stephanie but like why would somebody take their own life and write in the note that he confessed to doing it right if you're framing your friends like that's pretty extreme oh my gosh and then I was wondering one other thing I wondered did they ever investigate the man who did take his own life Like, I don't want to speak ill of the dead, especially if he had nothing to do with it. It's very sad to me that he did take his own life. But, like, maybe he couldn't admit to it himself. And so he, like, implicates a friend just to get it off his chest. Or maybe he was there with Kevin Mooney. Maybe these are the two men in a blue van. I was going to say maybe. (laughs) They're the two. It's all a far stretch, but he is the one who brought up Stephanie's case. Either Kevin did tell this man he did it, or this man was there, or he knows something about it, or this man, like, made it all up. But like I said, he literally took his own life. That's crazy. So 
that's like where the case sits for the next 10 years until 2016. And the original detective that took the missing persons report, Linda Dubiel, she travels with a group of other investigators in 2016 to interview the drifter again. The police will not release information obtained in those interviews because Stephanie's case is still open. But disappeared featured Detective Wayne Christie of Canyon County in Nampa. He had interviewed the drifter back in 2000 and says that he felt at the time that they were on the verge of solving Stephanie's case when talking with the drifter. He's convinced that this is the man responsible for Stephanie's disappearance. But police just could not get him to confess. Stephanie's grandma, Hazel, doesn't know what to think. I mean, how could she? There are literally three suspects who are all suspicious in my mind. Right. And like I said earlier, she wants to hold on to the hope that Stephanie may be out there somewhere alive. Hazel does think that someone had to have seen something, even if they don't realize what they saw. And she hopes one day before her death, there will be answers about what happened to her nine-year-old granddaughter three decades ago. This year will mark 30 years since Stephanie was last seen in Chalice, Idaho. Her parents and grandpa left this world without answers, but hopefully they're reunited with her if she isn't if she is not still alive. Her grandma and sisters and her friends still live with the burden of wondering where she could be. Brandy grew up to have children of her own, and she named her third daughter Stephanie in honor of her best friend, who she says will always remain a part of her family. Stephanie's case is still open in 2023. She deserves to be found. Her family deserves answers. And if you have any information that will lead to her whereabouts, you can call the Custer County Sheriff's Office at 208-879-2232 or the tip line at 208-879-5372. And you can also call the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at 1-800-THE-LOST. That's 1-800-842-5678. And that is the case of Stephanie Crane, where I can just not make up my mind about who I think is the most connected. I know. Uh, what do you think? I think it was probably Keith. I do too. That like That's kind of who I, I default he- to because he clearly shows a pattern for it. And he yeah. actually, like, I mean, it's presumed that he kidnapped Amber, but he 100% for a fact, non-debatable, at least committed one abduction yeah. of that 14-year-old girl. So... And he likely kidnapped and murdered Amber. So what's to say he didn't do it seven years earlier to Stephanie? And if that's the case, was there anybody else? I know. Through these years? Yeah. I think it is likely Keith. But then I don't know if I'm biased to that because I covered Amber's case first. We just heard. Yeah. So that is a very sad tell of Stephanie who... I just those are two cases I wish Stephanie and Amber could be found even if it's they're not found alive if their bodies could be found and like bring some closure to these cases. I know that's where you want the missing just yes to be able to have closure. Yeah because like her grandma is still holding on to that hope. It'd just be hard to always wonder. Exactly. So, yeah, very, like, devastating, very intriguing case. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Kayla Waters. My co-host is Alicia Jenkins. My palate cleanser giver is Charlie Waters. And all our music was created by Jaden Schultz, who you can find on Instagram at In Pajamas Music. Make sure to find us on social as well. We're on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. And always leave us a five-star written review if you have not. And if you have, I'm absolutely obsessed with you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for those reviews. Please make sure you share our episodes onto your social media with your friends your family, your co-workers, and let them know where you love to listen to podcasts right here. Hi, I'm Charlie Waters, and today I'm going to give you a palate cleanser about Olympics.
We all know that Olympics give out medals for all so- sorts of sports, like running and gymnastics and all stuff like that. But did you know they used to give out medals for art, too? That's crazy. I wonder why they stopped doing that. Bye. Have a great day. Since the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children was mentioned for giving tips in Stephanie's case, I thought we could talk about them again for an organization. I have mentioned them before, but they are an incredible organization doing amazing work. One of my very favorite organizations because they're focused on the kids, which you guys know the kids are my number one priority. So you can visit their website at missingkids.org. This is the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. They are the largest and most influential child protection organization. On their website, it reads that they lead the fight to protect children, creating vital resources for them and the people who keep them safe. Because every child deserves a safe childhood. And I 100% agree. It's just a really incredible organization. I highly encourage you to donate, to volunteer, just to be involved with them.